I will record this right now. Great. Well, thank you so much. And and if you want to start by introducing yourself, go for it. Sure. Thanks. I'm I'm Sean Malloy, and I'm I'm currently a professor of history and critical race and ethnic studies uh, at the University of California Merced, where I have been since 2005. Uh, I was uh, I was trained as a diplomatic historian. I got my PhD, my BA at UC Berkeley, a PhD at Stanford. Uh, I, I was trained as a, a relatively conventional uh, diplomatic historian. Uh, my my first book was uh, on the U.S. decision to drop the atomic bomb uh, on Japan, um, and then I subsequently transitioned to to a second book project that looked at the internationalism of the Black Panther, which is, I guess, what we'll be talking about mostly today. Uh, I will say, apropos of my background, that the, the current project I'm working on is a uh, an examination of the counter-mobilization against Palestinian solidarity efforts on U.S. college campuses, right? So um, looking at the way in which uh, Zionist organizations and, and campuses have tried to crack down on things like the boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS movement, um, as well as other efforts at Palestinian solidarity. Um, so th that's me, but I, 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 I want to turn it over to you to see what you want to talk about today. Well, definitely before going into the questions, I will just say um, that sounds like a really exciting project. I'm involved in my campus's SJP. We actually just mm. had uh, Mohammed Al-Kurd come speak on campus. Oh, and there, I saw there that. Was, yes, I saw that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. That seemed like it was a of, bit of a thing. <laughs> yeah, there, it was a little bit of a thing. We had, I mean, there you go right there for counter-mobilization. We had yeah. uh, writing in in the Algeminer about, about it and like denouncing it and everything. So there yeah. is one case study, um, but but that was great. And and it's always like great to see. I mean, it was like one of the most well attended events we've had on campus here. So it was awesome. So, so two questions. First of all, uh, yeah. do you prefer Joseph or Joe or something else? Either one works, but Joe, I think more people call me Joe. So yeah, you can. Okay, that's fine, so that's, yeah. Joe, that's question one. Question two is, do you have a Canary Mission page yet? I don't, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm in. Come on, to man, one. what are you doing? I know, right? I keep, <laughs> I keep telling everybody this is like, I want my Canary Mission page. And I feel like that's like, I deserve it. But our former president of our SJP here has one. Uh, I've checked it out. I feel like it's kind of a badge of honor to it, get one. It, it yeah. is. I mean, and I, I don't want to downplay the negative effect that Canary Mission can have, right? Right. Um, yeah. It's, like, I, I, I don't, don't understand it's pretty bad. Yeah. But it, but it also, you know, I, 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 I had a, we were doing a speaker series at my university and we had um, uh, Professor Rabab Al-Dahadi come on to talk and, and we, we were talking afterwards that like, she's just like, this Canary Mission is amazing. Like every time I'm depressed, I go look at this page of all these wonderful young yeah. activists. Um, and I, I've actually used, when, when, when planning speaker series, I've used Canary Mission to find speakers. Because <laughs> it's like, hey, That's somebody funny. else has already done all this. And you know, again, you have to, my own, I have a page on there, but they actually confused me and another Sean Malloy. Oh, really? So my Canary Mission page, the, my Canary Mission page credits me with writing a book in 1993. Oh, um, wow which is when I would have been a junior in college. Oh, that's good. Well, they're, they're kind of inflating exactly. your uh, resume a little bit. E exactly. So well, nice. Joe, I have no doubt you are going to get your own Canary Mission page. I have. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm on my way there soon. Um, considering uh, what we're, we're like hoping to continue. We're hoping to like do some more stuff on campus. We're hoping to like do, I think Cornell has done apartheid week in the past. We haven't had mm -hmm. it in a while. We're hoping to try and do one this semester as well. So maybe that'll be my my opportunity to earn my my position. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, we have an activist here in the SJP who's got his page. We have our sponsor, I think, has a page. Yeah, which is yeah. pretty crazy. And I, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, he's tenured, so he's he's okay. Yeah, but, exactly, exactly. Right. And I, you know, for folks like me, having a Canary Pigeon page is, is you know, I can laugh about it. I I, I don't I don't want to downplay the effect it can yeah. have on people's careers. Um, and, you know, anybody who knows what Canary Mission is, is going to take it with a grain of salt. But right. I mean, there there are cases when, you know, I've gotten emails from from graduate students saying, hey, I want to chat about something from, you know, from another university. And the, I'll Google them just because that's what you do. And on, mm -hmm. on a number of occasions, the first thing that's turned up has been their Canary Mission page. Well, that's the crazy thing is I I feel like it's it's set up to be the very first Google yep. result. Uh, I mean, that's insane. Yeah, I know that people have have also tried to do like a an anti-canary mission or there's like there was an attempt to set up a kind of like downplaying it or, or countering yeah. it in some way but it's crazy how how extensive it is and 
Yeah. I, yeah. I they, their search optimization, their SEO work, whoever's doing that, right. I mean, they're, they're evil, really good. But, but props yeah. to their SEO person because yeah. <laughs> it, does, it does tend to turn up first. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I do worry about particularly, you know, students, folks who are not tenured, um, yeah. you know, that can, they can have very negative consequences and, right. um, you know, we, we laugh about it when we can, but I, it's also, it's also, I, I, particularly for younger folks who, you know, are looking for jobs and that page pops up and it says, oh, you're an anti-Semite, right? Because you signed right. a BDS petition. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, hopefully, it, it is a way to, as you're saying, kind of like make connections, if anything, in like this kind of weird way, you can kind of see like what people on other campuses are doing. So yeah, it's unfortunate, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it actually comes some, with, comes with the turf, I think. Yeah. It does. I mean, there's some weird links there actually to the Panthers um, in that. Oh, really? I mean, just in the extent that one of the things that I found in doing the research for the book is that um the folks who have done some of the like the most comprehensive historical work on the, on the Black Panther Party is the FBI, right? And that 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 um, the I, I think there are times in the history of the Panthers when the FBI knew more about what was going on across all the various Panther chapters than the leadership of the Panthers did, right? Because because they were so dedicated. The FBI had lots of money and people to throw at the question of understanding the Panthers and the Panther leadership was, you know, struggling to keep things afloat. So, um, you know, sometimes these, these sort of outside um, hostile organizations actually do a better job of indexing and, you know, obviously through an ideological filter and lens that you have to unpack. Um, but, you know, in the same way, in the same way that I found out things, I found, I, I made connections through Canary Mission that uh, I found out, you know, I, I think there, there are things that, uh, you know, I've heard former Panthers say they they would read the Cointel profiles and found out things they didn't know about the party they were part of because they were only one small part of it. Yeah, it, it is kind of incredible as well. Like I think people have discovered a lot um, with declassifying some of these documents from from Cointel Pro about mm -hmm. a whole range of different things as well as well as like the assassination of Fred Hampton and yeah and everything. Yeah. Um, but so just to just to go into the book, like I'm very curious about, I think in particular, when you discuss like not to like jump too far ahead, maybe we can kind of start start off with maybe like a brief introduction to the very like thesis that you're working with about like the internet the internationalism yeah. of the Black Panthers, how they start making anti-colonial connections. But kind of what I am interested in focusing on is the split that emerges between mm. Eldridge Cleaver, based out of Algiers, um, and then the Panthers who stay in, in California with Huey Newton, primarily like focusing on domestic or mm -hmm. local kind of service in the community. So let, let's kind of like begin with this internationalism that emerges with the, the Panthers and like how it becomes a part of their theory to incorporate anti-colonialism. The, some of the chapter names you have are really incredible, like Chuche Baby All the Way is like one of my favorites. Um, but how did they start encountering thinkers like Frantz Manon, Mao, um, and incorporating them into the rhetoric as well as the ideology of the Panthers? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, and I, you know, sort of backing up just a little bit, part of the reason that that I ended up writing the book I wrote is that it, it, it seemed to me that while there had been a decent amount of writing on the Panthers, I mean, there's plenty of good academic stuff on the Panthers. Um, and, you know, everybody had kind of acknowledged the Panthers had an internationalist dimension that um, there hadn't been a lot of attention to kind of the evolution and subtleties of the Panthers internationalism. And it's something that very much changed over time and was also contested within the party itself, right? That, you know, we'll, we'll get to when, when we talk about the split. Um, and I think, you know, very early, you know, the, Pan the Panthers were exposed to things like, like Fanon, like Che, um, like the, you know, various kind of de decolonial movements in Africa before they were the Panthers, right? That, that the, the Panthers founders and folks would go on to become influential leaders within the party, like Eldridge Cleaver, like Bobby Seale, like Huey Newton. Um, uh, they, they, you know, they encountered that stuff kind of organically in their communities. And so, you know, when Bobby Seale and, and, um, and, and, and Huey Newton are encountering Fanon, they're encountering it in, in, in the context of their own community in, 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 in Oakland, right? Um, and, and in the initial 
and and they encountered also through groups like um, the Revolutionary Action Movement, right? Which is which is I was just talking with actually a graduate student today about there really needs to be more writing on the Revolutionary Action Movement or RAM, right? Um, this is a group that started in the 1962 uh, with some with some people of color coming out of uh, uh, Students for Democratic Society or SDS. They had a chapter in Oakland, and um, they were really really committed to trying to take you know stuff like Fanon, stuff like the the NLS actions in in Vietnam and 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 bring it to bring it to a, a domestic audience in the United States um, and in, in the very early stages of the Panthers development um, you know the party kind of downplayed some of that stuff right so if you read the the Black Panthers original um, ten point ten point program from October nineteen sixty six um, it's not it's not particularly Marxist. Uh, at, le at least in, as you read it, nor is it particularly internationalist, right? You don't, there's no reference to Fanon there, or there's no reference to, um, you know, to Mao in there. Um, and, you know, my, my reading of that, and I, I, think, I think it's a pretty widely shared reading, is that, that that was a deliberate move, right? It was, it was a realization that if you're going to appeal to folks in Oakland, uh, you don't start by talking about Fanon, that Fanon influences your praxis, it influences the way you think about your position in the society, uh, but you don't go out and, and, and recruit a lot of people um, by, by immediately hitting them with Fanon. Um, and that, that's you know, part of what I track over the course of the book is the evolution of the party's internationalism from something that informed the founders but wasn't particularly explicit um, through, you know, by the time we get to like late 1967, late 1968, a more explicit embrace of various forms of internationalism. Um, and then the, the kind of the different types of connections that the Panthers are making, right? Some of it is rhetorical and, um, and, and, and draws a kind of imagery that, that connects the Panthers struggle in the United States to struggles in Vietnam, to struggles in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but also some of it is much more direct, right? So you, you particularly with the trial of Huey Newton, the Huey Newton trial in, in, in 1968, the Panthers are looking for allies. And so they go to the United Nations, they go to Japan, they go to Sweden, they go to Germany, and they, there's the kind of transnational organizing. Um, and then the final step in that is when we get to, when, when, when Eldridge Cleaver goes into exile and he ends up in Algeria, um, there's a there's a need for for more tangible support, right? Uh, and the kind that's the kind of support you get from state governments. And so so Cleaver has relationships not just with the Algerian government, but also with the government of the DPRK, uh, with Vietnam, with China. Um, and you know, as you know, that 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 causes some stresses, right? And so you know, if we want, we can. Do, do you want to talk more about the break now, or do you want to go back and 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 talk about your earlier stuff? And you should take this in any order you want, right? Like, and talk about whatever you want. This is no, this is this is your chance to ask anything you want to ask. Well, I'm really curious about like Eldridge Cleaver's kind of uh, travels in like in North Korea in particular mm -hmm. is kind of interesting to me. I think. I'm a little bit more familiar with why he was in Algeria, but even that too, I would love if you can like go more yeah. in depth about how exactly he ended up traveling, traveling there, what he did while he was there, you know, how involved he was in participating in, in I guess that would be post-revolutionary Algeria at mm -hmm. that point. Um, and, and yeah, I'm curious about that. And as well in the DPRK, Vietnam as well. So yeah, if you could go into more about his international travels. Sure, and I think I mean to, to talk about Cleaver's internationalism, you you have to you have to sort of go back to why why he left the country, right? And that is, in the aftermath of the assassination of of Martin Luther King, um, in April 1968, there's this kind of debate within the the Panthers about what do we do, right? And um, there's a faction le led by Cleaver in Oakland that says this is war, right? This is a declaration of war, and it, it is. It is sort of interesting given that, I mean, the Panthers were pretty dismissive of MLK, right? They saw him as too closely tied to a kind of liberal civil rights approach, too closely tied to, to the US government. And yet, I think it may be because of that is why his assassination is so shocking to them. That, I mean, here is somebody who from their point of view is a, is a you know, is, is, is overly moderate, um, not, not a revolutionary. And yet if they can kill him, um, that's a sign of how far gone this country is. And so, uh, you know, Cleaver wants to, wants to start a war, right? Cleaver says the time has come 
for us to, to put into action all of all of our, our language and our, our rhetoric about uh, about revolution. And uh, there's this very tense behind the scenes fight uh, b- between between Cleaver and other elements of the party, including Huey Newton, who's then in jail, who 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 think this is a bad idea. Um, Cleaver wins, and they end up they end up going on a, a, a they they you know, but Panther cars roll out into Oakland with 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 the goal of of taking it to the Oakland Police Department. Um, and you know they end up being they end up being a shootout that doesn't particularly go well for the Panthers. Um, Bobby Hutton, who's a, a young teenage member of the Panthers, is essentially murdered by police. He'd surrendered, um, and and is murdered after having surrendered. Um, and they're going to send Cleaver back to jail again, right? Cleaver had been in jail, um, and he decides ultimately that rather than go back to jail, he's going to flee the country. Um, and he goes first to Cuba because that's where the Panthers have a bunch of connections. Cuba has a, a kind of long history. Uh, revolutionary Cuba, that is, has a long history of taking in uh, particularly uh, black black revolutionaries, folks like um, Robert F. Williams. Uh, and you know, Cleaver's idea is, I'm going to go to Cuba and I'm going to get a base there. I'm going to I'm going to be able to train some troops. I'm going to be able to build a guerrilla army. Um, and it, it ends up being a kind of rude awakening for Cleaver, Cleaver about the, the limits of the Cuban Revolution, at least with respect to um, to its relationship to black revolutionaries and. Uh, I mean, he runs into he runs smack dab into Cold War politics and specific, specifically the Sino-Soviet split that um, the Soviet Union uh, was in this part, you know, be, be, beginning to move towards what would become detente, was beginning to become less confrontational under Khrushchev with respect to the United States, was kind of toned down the rhetoric of the Cold War. Um, and Cuba at that point had very much sort of fallen into the Soviet camp as opposed to the Chinese camp. And so... At, as a result, Cuba is is also trying to cool its relations um, with with American revolutionaries to some extent, um, and it's not super. You know, they take Cleaver in, but they're not super enthusiastic about providing him with a with a base for armed revolution. Um, and the other issue is that Cuba has its own issues with race, right? Um, you know, the Cuba, the Cuban the Cuban Revolution had had very much attempted to address issues of of, of racism against Afro Cubans. Um, but for a kind of complicated variety of factors, those those efforts had had stalled by the mid 1960s, and you know there were fears within the Cuban government, which is largely white presenting, about Afro Cuban um, Afro Cuban black power movements within Cuba, and so here you have Eldridge Cleaver, who who is you know once basically essentially an armed training camp for black folks on that island, and it's very inconvenient for the Cuban government. Uh, and, you know, the last straw is when a bunch of hijackers start arriving on the islands. This is that kind of golden age of air piracy. And a bunch of hijackings arrive in Cuba, and many of them, you know, claim connections to Cleaver or the Black Panthers. And for a Cuban government that is trying to, you know, not necessarily mend defenses with the U.S., but it, 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 at, at, least, at least tone things down a little bit, um, that's the last straw. And they end up essentially just p- putting Cleaver on a plane and shuffling them off to Algeria without ever consulting the Algerian government, without saying, hey, do you want him? They're just like, hey, get on this plane, go to, go to Algiers, bye. Um, and Cleaver, by all accounts at that point, was afraid for his own life in Cuba. Um, that, I mean, he, he, he had a house there that he'd stocked with guns and he was, he was ready for the Cubans to come for him at that point. So he, he did get on that plane because he figured the alternative was something not good happened to him in Cuba. Uh, but he immediately runs into this problem. He's he's in a he's in a he's in Algiers, and he has no connections. He has no money anymore because the State Department has frozen all of his assets. They say, "Oh, you're a Cuban national now." Um, and so you know he and then he's soon joined by his 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 um, his, his wife Kathleen Cleaver, who was pregnant with her first child. Um, he has this okay. Well, I'm like I'm in Algeria. I don't know anything about this place. You know, he know about Phnom, but he's never been to Algeria. Um, no institutional support, no connections. What do I do, right? Um, and he gets some help from uh, a woman named Elaine Klein, who had been an f- associate of Fanon's, and she she worked in the Foreign Affairs Office at um, in with, for the Algerian government. Kind of recognizes Cleaver, and um, secures him an invite to this Pan African festival that's taking place in Algiers, as well as an uh, as well as a, a, a an invitation to the to the Panther delegation. Uh, and that kind of gets his foot in the door in terms of uh, an official presence in Algeria. Uh, but of course that festival ends, right? Like the festival ends, it's a big success. It's a big moment for the Panthers. There's a lot of, um, 
you know the Panthers have a have a have a uh, a, a kind of uh, like exhibition hall in, in Algiers, and they they appear on stage next to representatives of the PLO and Fatah and Yasser Arafat. It's this wonderful moment for them. But also that festival is going to end, and while everyone else gets to go home, uh, Cleaver, you know, Eldridge Cleaver and Kathleen Cleaver are stuck there. Um, and it's I think it's at this moment where the kind of Asian connections come in, right? The DPRK. Um, and 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 then later China and 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 North Vietnam as well as the NLF um, that it, it for reasons that that we don't entirely know and and we're going to need to someone you know um, to do the archival work on this the DPRK actually reaches out to Cleve while he's in Algiers um, and uh, you know the, the genesis of this I don't know right. Um, reaches out to him and the embassy there, the embassy there entertains him and he's invited on to this conference, this kind of conference of radical journalists and activists held in North Korea. Um, and, you know, Cleaver, from my understanding, you know, Cleaver goes to this, not necessarily because he knows a lot or cares a lot about Juche or, or about North Korea, but because he's kind of desperate. Um, and I, I think he finds, you know, when he goes, A, he finds, he, he finds, um, he finds the kind of North Korean model uh, of communism appealing because it's it's not North Korea is an example of a kind of smaller country that had managed to carve out its own socialist communist path that had connections to the other to the other parts of the communist world but was not necessarily beholden to either China or Russia right so that notion of a kind of small independent scrappy self reliant form of communism is attractive to him. Um, but he also quickly figures out, uh, and this is where the kind of general turn to Asia comes in, that um, whereas a lot of the governments in the non-aligned world, um, you know, places like Algeria, um, are are trying to walk this delicate line of not pissing off the U.S. too much, because you know there's these kind of larger geopolitical currents, and and and, and Korea has no such problem, um, and uh, you know neither obviously does North Vietnam, and. What's interesting is that he kind of leverages, Cleaver leverages the DPRK, leverages Vietnam and leverages China to put pressure on Algeria to allow him to operate there, right? So he's playing a very sophisticated kind of high level game of geopolitics that is in part influenced by ideology, right? He does, I think he generally does jibe with the, with the North Korean versions of revolution. Um, but there's also, you know, a non-trivial amount of real politique there, right? That he needs, he needs allies um, because Cleaver doesn't want to just be in exile, right? He doesn't just want to live comfortably in exile. He since very sincerely and genuinely wants to return to the United States as part of a revolutionary army. And I mean, we can, we can talk about how realistic or unrealistic that is, um, but it's genuinely what he wanted. And to make that possible, he needed allies, right? And uh, I think that, you know, even to stay in Algeria, he needed allies. And he's very successful, at least for a time, in leveraging those connections to Vietnam, to the DPRK, to the PRC, um, into the kind of credibility he needed to build up a headquarters in Algeria, right? And it's, he gets the former, the former headquarters of the NLF, right? When the NLF gets recognized as the provisional government of revolution, of president revolutionary government of Vietnam, the Panthers are gifted the, the, the NLF's old, um, old, residents in Algiers as a kind of embassy, right? Okay, thank you so much. That that was a lot of very interesting information. And so I'm curious as well then with the development of, you talk a lot about it in the book, the international section developing mm -hmm. out of this, as well as the, the RPCN, the Revolutionary People's mm -hmm. Communication Network. Can you talk more about like how these kind of factions formed within the Black Panther Party and what their link was to this ongoing internationalism of the party spreading outside the borders of the U.S. Yeah, and it's it it is they begin. I mean, initially the international section is the international section of the Black Panther Party, right? And it's just um, it's not a separate organization at the beginning. It is simply Eldridge Cleaver's sort of branch of the party um, in Algeria. And you know when 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 Cleaver first arrives in Algeria, Huey Newton is still in jail, and uh, you know Bobby Seale is kind of in and out of jail and courtrooms as a result of you know the Chicago demonstrations and other things. Um, and in many ways, you know Cleaver, even though he's in exile, Cleaver and the international section are arguably the dominant part of that party at that point. 
right? That the rest of the party is either in jail or just trying to keep its head above water. Um, and where it begins to get into factionalism is, is after the release of, uh, you know, after Huey Newton gets out in 1970. And you know, he, he, gets out, he gets out in the summer of 1970 and um, Newton is released from jail and takes the party in a different direction, right? Um, Newton and Newton has convinced that armed 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 conflict is not is not going to work, right? That um, that whatever you think of it ideologically or morally, that armed conflict has not been practical for the Panthers. It's resulted in dead Panthers and jail Panthers, um, and also that the kind of internationalism that Cleaver had engaged in, particularly the kind of direct contact with foreign governments, as opposed to transnational organizing with other activists, or the kind of direct connections with, 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 with foreign governments, Newton is convinced that that's not really appealing or useful for people who live in Oakland, right, or LA, um, and starts to take the party in a different direction. And, you know, I, it's not inconceivable that you could have, you could have kept those two strains of the party in uh, operating under the same roof, right, that, um, you know, as I, as I, I think as I mentioned in the book, like, you know, governments, state governments oftentimes have different elements that favor different policies in them, right? The Secretary of State may want a different thing than the Secretary of Defense. Um, and that kind of tension can be productive and useful. And you can imagine, um, you can imagine a version of the Panthers where those, those play out not in a split, but in a kind of, you know, a give and take between those two factions. Um, but that's where obviously the, the, the FBI and Quintel Pro comes back into the story. And that, the, the FBI had been closely monitoring both Cleaver and, and the Oakland-based and other, other US-based Panthers and uh, essentially helped engineer a split, right? By, by writing letters to each of the two sides saying, hey, Eldridge just got to get you or Huey's out to get you. Um, and you know, I, 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 there were absolutely genuine ideological and personal disagreements between the Oakland-based Panthers and the international section. Uh, I don't think they were inherently unbridgeable. Cointelpro made them unbridgeable. And 19, with 1971, um, we, get, we get a split where Huey Newton expels the international section, expels Eldridge and, and his entire contingent of, you know, varies between 20 or 30 people at any one time in Algiers. Um, and then Huey also goes and then writes to all of Eldridge's backers, right? Writes, literally, there are letters in the Huey Newton papers from, from Huey Newton to like the, you know, to Castro, uh, to, the, to the leadership in Algiers, to, to the leadership in North Korea saying Eldridge Cleaver doesn't speak for us anymore. Um, and, you know, Cleaver then is, 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 is left to try to formulate an alternate strategy. And, th and that's where we get the, the, the Revolutionary People's Communications Network, uh, which is an attempt to kind of build a more transnational base of support for the party. Um, and it, in many ways, it, it's a kind of, it's a recognition by Cleaver and, and, and Kathleen Cleaver is also really, is arguably as important or more important than Eldridge Cleaver in building the RCPN because Eldridge has limited ability to travel because he doesn't have a US passport. Kathleen Cleaver maintains her US passport. So she does a lot of the legwork to build this thing. Um, you know, I think the RPCN is, 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 is a realization that the kind of dreams of immediate revolution that we see in the late 1960s, the, the idea of we're going to go back, to, we're going to go back to America as an invading revolutionary army. Um, that by the early 70s, the, the realization is kind of that's not going to happen. And what we need to do instead is build a more decentralized network that is in, that will allow these various revolutionary possibilities that have sprung up in the 60s to, um, at the very least, survive in the more hostile climate. And um, I, you know, I think it's very forward-looking in a lot of ways. One of, one of the things they, they employ, they employ among the, the, among the first folks to use a personal video recorders, right? Because there's a kind of realization that we need to have a communication, the, the C for, is for communications. And this is an idea that um, these revolutionary movements that are in many ways on the defensive by the early 70s need to communicate with one another. And oftentimes they don't have the, re the resources to do things like publish an entire newspaper. Like the Black Panther Party newspaper is an incredibly powerful organ. Um, Cleaver no longer controls it. And it's honestly, it's just, it's hard to distribute a newspaper, right? And it's also easy for the government to crack down on, you know, hey, you find where the newspaper is being printed and you go, you go lock it down. 
um, by using these kind of personal, literally like Sony personal video recorders. There's a cartoon in one of their one of their magazines that shows them literally using Sony branded personal video recorders. Um, it allows for a kind of more decentralized or revolutionary organization. And then you know the other real um, inspiration for 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 Cleaver post split uh, is Black September, right? Is is pal as Palestinian guerrillas who are also operating in a very kind of stateless transnational fashion, taking advantage of the new technologies, things like air travel, um, you know, relatively accessible air travel um, and, and using that as a way to, to operate as guerrillas on a kind of global, on a, on a global scale. And I think it, it's a, it, in these new organizations are in some ways a result of the split with the Panthers, but I think they're also very much in keeping with the kind of changing times of the early seventies, right? That, you know, on the one hand, the revolution didn't come, at least not in the United States. Um, but on the other hand, there are groups like the Red Army faction in, in West Germany, like Black September, that have found ways to exploit some of these new technologies of neoliberal globalization and turn them against the West, turn them against the metropole. Um, and so I think in that way, you know, Cleaver's journey, the kind of Cleaver's internationalist journey um, is an interesting sort of like slice of what it looks like to be a radical, uh, to be a radical and to be a revolutionary um, from the from the kind of mid '60s through the early '70s, and the kind of changes that that Cleaver has no control over, right? Um, it doesn't have control over detente. Doesn't have control over the end of the Vietnam War. Doesn't have control over Nixon going to China. Um, but instead of giving up he and other revolutionaries are looking at ways to, okay, how do we evolve? How do we change? Um, and I think that's in many ways, one of the more interesting parts of that story, right? Is th they don't succeed. They, they you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty frank in the book and saying that by their own standards, the Panthers failed, right? Not to say they didn't have a legacy, not to say they didn't have important contributions, but their own, by their own standards, they wanted a revolution, right? That, that party was not founded to feed school children breakfast. They did do that. And that's an important contribution, but it's not why they were founded. Um, but in that, you know, although they did fail, it's not a question of being confronted with resistance and giving up, right? They, they continued into the seventies and into the late seventies, they continued to find ways. And if you look at the black liberation army, all the way up to the early eighties, they continued to find ways to try to change, deal with a changing domestic and international environment. And I wonder also too, how important internationalism became in the aftermath and the the legacy of uh, the Black Panther Party internationalism as a both legacy of of the the Panthers and as a an continual feature in in Black radicalism in the United States and creating this kind of proletarian uh, internationalism um, and how like on the converse of that how important it was for these struggles in the global South in Algeria in Cuba. You, you, so you mentioned in particular, like the relationship of post-revolutionary or revolutionary Cuba, uh -huh. um, like after the Cuban revolution, I mean, uh, to black radicalism as well. Mm -hmm. So how did the Black Panther Party, like having a presence in, uh, and then also in Vietnam, like we see, mm -hmm. and I think you talked about this as well, like uh, the NLF in Vietnam adopting a lot of, or China or North mm -hmm. Korea adopting a lot of the rhetoric uh, of black radicalism, Mao has met, written like a lot of statements about uh, solidarity for uh, for the black struggle in the United States. And so, do you think that the Black Panther Party played a role in kind of spreading uh, this revolutionary message abroad, and also letting these struggles in the in the rest of the world know uh, that for the African American struggle in the United States, that is part of in a way, part of a global South revolutionary struggle yeah. as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's also one that was hard for me to get at. Um, uh, because to, to really answer that question, I mean, there are super, obviously there are superficial ways in which governments, you know, the governments of Vietnam and China are, are paying homage to the black freedom struggle and playing particularly to kind of the black radicalism represented by the Panthers. Um, I think that really the question that's hard to answer from, from a perspective of an outsider perspective is how did these governments and how did the people within these countries actually think about Black radicals and the Panthers? To what extent is, for example, you know, when, when Mao is writing statements that are getting published in the, in the, in the, in the Black Panther, right? 
Um, you know, how, to, to what extent is that just a kind of form of, uh, of, of, uh, of kind of cynical, of cynical politics, right? Uh, because, you know, states are states, right? That's the thing. States do state things. And even revolutionary states do state things. They do things in their interest. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the history of the, the, you know, the history, the history of proletarian internationalism is, is, is rife with kind of these tensions between the notion of a kind of larger proletarian revolution and the fact that revolutionary states also have interests as states. And, and, and you know, and, and you can say, it's not necessarily cynical, that they may be protecting the revolutionary project within their state. And that, but that's their first priority. And so it's very unclear to me because I don't have access to the, uh, I didn't have access to the Chinese archives or the Vietnamese archives or the Algerian archives. Uh, I don't know the language skills to do that. Um, how these states saw the Panthers, right? Do they see the Panthers as of genuine allies who were, who were capable of being real partners? Um, or did they see them more as a propaganda opportunity? Right, um, and you know, because you know, and certainly in in the Cuban in, in the in the Cuban case, um, you know, Cleaver certainly came to believe that he was being used for propaganda. Right, that that the black struggle that that Cuba would embrace the black struggle as a way of critiquing the United States, but wasn't willing to actually do anything about it. Right, like they're happy to to criticize American race relations, but when he asked for a training camp for Revolutionary Army, like no dog, we're out. Um, and so I, I, to me, it's a really, really interesting question. And it, it, it's both at the government level and, and below that, right? So there's the government level of how did the government of China think about, you know, when, when, when Cleaver and his delegation are touring Vietnam or China um, or North Korea, like how does the government see these groups? Like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, and then when they are meeting with these, when they're, when they're meeting with more grassroots organizations in these countries, like how do those groups interpret them? I don't know. Um, and I, I really think there's a lot of interesting scholarship to be done on that side of it. And some of it will be hard because the archives are hard to get at. Um, but I, 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 I do think that, you know, on, on, on the one hand, uh, I think the Panthers are tremendously successful in making these connections, right? Um, and I'm, drawing on a, a much longer history of black internationalism. On the other hand, I, I don't want to romanticize or, or overplay the impact of the Panthers internationalism in, in other countries because um, these are, you know, these are countries that have their own interests and their own perceptions. And I, I, I don't, it, without actually getting into the archives, without actually talking with folks, um, it, it's hard to know. And, I, and I, I, there were, you know, there were plenty of instances, for example, with the Panthers relations with, um, with radical groups in places like Germany and Sweden, where on the one hand, I think there was a genuine commitment in those countries among some radicals to, to supporting the Panthers and to that kind of internationalism. I think there are also cases where the Panthers were kind of exoticized and fetishized by European activists, right? That like European activists who had a kind of conflicted relationship to America and to American popular culture um, and thought these black guys with guns and leather jackets were cool, right? Um, and again, that's not to downplay, that's not to say that, that's not to say that those, those relationships were all bad or false or cynical, but they're complicated. Um, and I'm sort of wary of speaking too much about what those relationships meant from the other side, right? Whether it's whether it's activists in Germany or whether it's the North Korean government. Um, I, I do think it's a really interesting question. And I, I hope there's a kind of new generation of scholars who particularly as, as archives open up are, are, can answer that question from the perspective, not of a Panther scholar, but of a North Korean scholar, of an Algerian scholar, right? Like a, 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 what did that mean to folks in those countries? That was a really good answer. And that kind of prompts me to another question, which is how this played a role, like situating it as you do in the Cold War as well. Mm -hmm. Like how the US, I mean, you've talked a lot about the FBI's role in, in destroying the Black Panther Party, but it, it's really curious to see that with respect to this Cold War politic that's going on as well of like viewing them with the same lens or uh, viewpoint that the US government would view the NLF in Vietnam or, uh, or the Cuban revolutionaries. So how did the, from, from that perspective, like how did the Black Panther Party become really like a front within the Cold War itself, but within the United States? Yeah. And, 
and then that kind of leads to like to what extent did the the party begin to adopt you know some of the ideological underpinnings of these revolutionary movements in the global south so you talk a lot about the Bendung conference kind of opening mm -hmm. up the third world as a as a political entity and like an ideological uh, existence and how did the black panther party kind of fit into that in making their rhetoric anti-colonial like to what extent did that really serve to point out some fact about the uh colonial or colonized nature of of african americans as well that yeah. they were talking about yeah i think i think both of those are, those are kind of two separate questions both of which are i think are, are productive and useful and you know, I guess I'll start with the question of the kind of the re the initial relationship of the Panthers to the Cold War, and I, I think, I mean, the, the Panthers, like like any other social movement or political movement at the time, it, were kind of born onto the terrain of the Cold War, right? Um, and the Cold War both helped to make and destroy the Panthers in various ways. That the that the you know, the, the kind of global struggles, particularly around Vietnam, right? Um, but also the Sino-Soviet split and um, the kind of, the, particularly the role of China in being what kind of a more aggressive anti-colonial power in the, in the 1960s and early 70s, um, helped create opportunities for the Panthers that wouldn't have existed elsewhere otherwise, right? The, the Vietnam War really, in particular, helped to kind of mobilize a global anti-colonial front that made it possible um, for groups like the Panthers to, to, to leverage themselves onto the world stage. Um, but the Panthers also kind of died as a result of the Cold War, right? Or the internationalism uh, of the Panthers um, that with the rise, you know, the, 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 I, I, I talked with, I had an interview with Kathleen Cleaver at one point, and she talks about the moment in Algiers when they turned on their TV and they saw um, Nixon going to China. Um, and that was just how just utterly devastating that was. Um, that when the Cold War turns in the early 70s towards detente and Sino-American you know, Sino negotiations opening up, um, that a lot of the kind of, anti and, you know, in the end of the Vietnam War, um, that the condition, the Cold War conditions that helped to allow for the kind of global anti-colonial front in which the Panthers were a part of, those change in the early 70s. And it becomes a much more hostile terrain. And you can begin to see, I mean, we're not there yet, but you can begin to see the kind of long march to the Washington consensus of the 1990s and the turn away from revolutionary internationalism. Um, so, I mean, the, the Panthers, and, and the Panthers, like every other group, had to navigate the terrain of the Cold War. I think much more so than many other groups, they, act, they were also active players in the Cold War. Um, and, you know, in, 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 in terms of um, the extent to which these various ideologies and movements um, were part of the Panthers' praxis, right? Um, that, that also changes a lot during the course of the party's life. And I think er early on, the party partakes of this very diverse uh, sort of stream of anti-colonial, um, anti-capitalist, anti-white supremacist ideologies and ideas. But they do so in a, in a, in a way that is very non-doctrinaire, right? So the early Panthers are, you know, they like Mao, they like Nkrumah, they like Castro, they like uh, Ho Chi Minh. They, they, are, they are just eagerly devouring a lot of this stuff um, and doing a kind of cafeteria style, almost proletarian internationalism without becoming particularly attached to any one country or doctrine or ideology. Um, and I, I think arguably that's a, that's a strength, right? That, I mean, I imagine you said you, 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 you are someone who spent some time in some leftist spaces and we all, we all know what it can be like when somebody gets too hung up on doctrine or ideology, right? That not to say these things don't matter, not to say that ideology isn't important, um, but it's very, very easy. And, you know, the U.S., the history of the U.S. left has largely been the history of the U.S. left fighting with itself, right, about, about and various splinter groups and fractions. And the Panthers early on, uh, I mean, you could argue it wasn't a particularly coherent ideology that when you're, when you're drawing from Fanon and Mao and Lenin and Castro and um, and also, you know, currents from American radical history. It's not, there's not a neat, 
co-panther ideology where you can where you can say this part comes from Mao, this part comes from Lenin. Um, but I do think it's powerful in helping to 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 allow the Panthers to organize both domestically and internationally. Um, the the change in that does happen in the 1969 1970 as as Cleaver in particular is more engaged, um, sort of by by necessity with 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 governments like like that of Kim Il Sung in the DPRK. There's a period for a year or two, you know, it started late 1969 and, and 1970 is probably the height of it, where the Panthers are adopting a kind of more, at least you know, at the top level. Uh, I don't know how much of this filters down to the rank and file, but at the top level are adopting um, a more kind of fleshed out version of, uh, of Marxist-Leninism, right? And, and particularly they embraced, they embraced, they embraced the DPRK and Juchi. Um, I think it's a relatively brief moment in the history of the party that for the most part, uh, the party's engagement with both Marxist ideology and with various forms of anti-colonialism um, is, is more cafeteria style. Um, and again, you, we, we can have a debate about, about, about whether that's a good approach or a bad approach, but I, 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 I think it's definitely something to be said for the way in which the Panthers um, selectively took parts from anti-colonial and Marxist ideology that fit their purposes without getting too hung up on, for example, what's more important, race or class, right? Um, they were like, yo, it's both. Um, and that was kind of where they settled, right? Without, without necessarily feeling like they had to have a nice long theoretical exegesis on, on, on the importance of, 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 of which of those two is, more, uh, 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 is the dominant force in the history of black people in the United States. That was a very, very fascinating answer. And I love your description of it as, as cafeteria style politics. Cause honestly reading a lot of it uh, and reading out of Oakland a lot um, makes you think about how digestible a lot of these politics can be made and how taken out of the mm -hmm. academy and, and really like into conversations over food, conversations with friends, a lot of these topics can be made. and. I think above all, a lot like reading about the Black Panther Party, you realize the way in which a lot of the theory of, of someone like Fanon, someone like Mao, even you mentioned like Nkrumah, it can be very easily condensed into like, uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily simplified or oversimplified, but can it be made very relatable to people in their, their daily lives? And I think that's the incredible thing is reading, so like reading the, the, the points of the Black Panther program, you it's kind of incredible how much of it in terms of rhetoric overlaps with the other movements of people in the global South for liberation, but also for bread, for freedom, you know, like specific tangible demands that make sense for people. Um, I'm trying to think of other questions because honestly, I, I can just like listen to you you know narrate these historical events and and I'm I'm really fascinated by it, but I guess my my to try and not have it last too long, I guess I would just wonder like not necessarily even the legacy of this because I think as you've said there there the Black Panther Party does still exist in people's mm -hmm. imagination if not as much in in real life, but I I would ask more about the legacy of this internationalism on today's left like yeah. how much do you see the the presence of a decidedly uh black radical internationalism still in 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 aspects like i can think of one right off the top of my head which i think a lot of people are familiar with which is the connection between making people making the connection between palestine right. and yeah. ferguson which is mm -hmm. definitely one yeah and i wonder the tracing kind of the the lineage and the the evolution of what the Black Panthers started with this internationalism to today, how we still kind of see some of that with with pro-Palestine activism, mm -hmm. um, but with a lot, but also with you know activism uh, in and around the African continent um, against Africom and Africa uh, against yeah. American imperialism in Africa as well. So yeah, I guess that would be my last question: is how do we trace the lineage of the Black Panther Party and its internationalism to the modern world today. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I just want to briefly jump back to our, to our last, the last type of conversation because I was thinking of something as you were talking, and uh -huh. 
I mean, you're on left Twitter, right? And you know that yeah. like, um, one of the perennial, like every two weeks is a dispute about whether people should read theory or need to read theory or not, right? You get the people who say, the no, time. you need to read theory. And those who say, no, fuck theory. Like we need to need direct action and don't make people read yeah. theory. Right. Um, and I think the Panthers are right in between there, right? They have that, that yeah. like, yeah, they, you know, theory is cool. Theory is useful. Theory helped the Panthers get to where they are. But they also understood that, like, if you want to win people over, you can't just say read theory, right? You need to you need to make it digestible. You need to, you know, if you want to be a successful revolutionary movement, theory is, you know, I do think theory is important, right? And the history of other revolutionary movements is important. But nobody wants to sit down and read a fucking textbook, right? Like, um, and I think Panthers did a really good job uh, among the things they did best were to straddle that line between, between, hey, read your theory and no, just go do something, right? Um, but, you know, turning to your, your question about the kind of contemporary legacy of, of Panther internationalism, I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of pessimistic about that. Um, that, you know, on the one hand, you can point to the, you know, the, the fact that things like Twitter and, and the internet and has made it easier than ever for us to communicate across, you know, to communicate transnationally, right? So like the whole, I mean, I, like Ferguson, right? Like I remember during the Ferguson protest and, and on Twitter, there would be Palestinian activists saying, oh, that's the same tear gas they use against us. Here's how, here's the best way to protect yourself, right? Um, and there were all kinds of interesting international connections. But I think also we just need to recognize that the international climate is incredibly different now than it was in the 60s and 70s. And it is almost in, in almost every single way more hostile to, to that kind of revolutionary internationalism, right? That during the 1960s and 70s, there were powerful revolutionary states um, and you know, not just transnational groups, which there were as well, and not just movements within states, but powerful revolutionary states that offered not just an alternative ideology on the world stage, but also powerful material support. Um, that's almost entirely gone now. Um, that, you know, there are still revolutionary states out there. Um, there is still a DPRK, there's still a Cuba. Um, those, you know, there's still a nominally communist China. You can have another guest on to talk about whether China's actually communist or not. I'm not gonna touch that one. Um, but uh, they, they're a shadow. We are, we do not have the kind of international, not to say there aren't people internationally all around the world who are interested in proletarian revolution, but the infrastructure is not there the way it was. Um, and I, I think we need, to, we need to be realistic about that, right? It's easy to romanticize the kind of, oh, look, I can speak with a revolutionary in Brazil on Zoom tomorrow, right? Like, which is cool. But also it's not a substitute for the kind of revolutionary infrastructure, however fractured, however difficult it was to deal with, right? And again, this is not to romanticize that particular period. Um, but, you know, almost everybody I've talked to um, from that period, from the 60s and 70s, who was a member of the Panthers or other groups, one of the things they almost all say is, we were convinced the revolution was actually going to happen. Like, we were convinced it was going to happen here. Um, and I think in, in part they were convinced of that because of the larger international scene, right? There was a vibrant international revolutionary movement and it was conflicted it was it was it was in a difficult position in times but it was real and now we just and I don't want to I don't want to be doom and gloom and say there's no hope um but the climate now for that kind of international activism or transnational activism is just not what it was and um and I guess the other thing I'll sort of end on is in terms of thinking about the legacy of the Panthers and kind of unresolved questions it goes back to the question of violence um, and it, it's something that, I mean, there's a lot of really good scholarship on the Panthers. I think one thing that, I, that I've been critical of on some of the Panthership, Panther scholarship and, and, and accounts in the public is the tendency to, to, to steer away from the emphasis on violence, right? And I understand where this comes from, that, you know, when the Panthers first burst on the scene in the 60s and 70s, it's, oh my God, black men with guns. And that becomes the whole thing, right? Um, and there's been this kind of effort to reclaim the Panthers as, oh no, they fed school children. They were about community activism. Um, and that is a part of the party and it's part of their legacy. But ultimately the Panthers had an analysis that said the United States is a genocidal uh, white supremacist nation 
founded on those principles, maintained by those principles, and it can only be changed through revolution. And that revolution, given the history of this country, can only happen through violence. That it's just, if you, if you follow that analysis, it is, it is essentially violence is, violence is going to be inevitable. Um, and, you know, ultimately the party turned away from that because it wasn't working, because the other guys had more guns. But, you know, to the, and, and again, part of the turn to internationalism is that, well, we don't have enough guns. You know who has guns? Mao's got guns. Castro's got guns. Kim Il-sung's got guns. Um, and we can critique that. We can critique, you know, you know what, what some people call infantile leftism, right? The like, and yet at the end of the day, I think their analysis was correct. And I still think it's correct that I don't think this state, I don't think the United States is going to fundamentally change in a revolutionary fashion without violence. Um, I don't like the odds um, currently, and it didn't work out for the Panthers when they tried it, right? But I, I, I do think it behooves folks who are thinking about revolution to, th to think about A, the actual international environment we face today, which is not the environment of the 60s or 70s, and B, think very seriously about the question of violence. Um, because I just don't see a way under the current constellation of, 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 of forces that this country changes without, without, without extreme violence. Um, that's not gonna say I'm gonna pick up my AK tomorrow. <laughs> um, but I think we need to, like if you're thinking about revolution, I, I think you need to figure out, you need to think about where violence comes. And the Panthers had an analysis of that. And when they fought about with themselves, right? The party, the party within the party itself, they fought about this question of how, when to use violence. But I, I think we need to foreground that question and thinking about revolution. Um, and it's not an easy one. It's not one there's an easy answer to. Um, but I don't think we should shy away from it because if you follow the analysis of someone like Fanon, um, you know, decolonization is always a violent event. Um, and if you follow the colonial analysis, that means the decolonization of this country isn't going to be fucking land acknowledgements, right? Like, it's not going to be like, oh, we acknowledge this land. Well, great. You didn't do shit. Congratulations. Um, not to say they can't be, you know, useful for other purposes. I don't want to get into a whole debate about that. But, um, you know, you should ha have an indigenous or native person on to talk about land acknowledgments and the politics of that within tribal communities. But um, land acknowledgments are not going to decolonize this country. I will say that. Um, and, and so I, I, I do think that I don't have an answer for you, but I do think thinking about violence is something that the left absolutely needs to do um, if it's serious about revolution. That's a phenomenal answer. And, and thinking about that also made me think about critiques that people have have lobbed against just, I mean, the, the whole history of the left being like criticizing democratic socialism and yeah. criticizing reformism. And, and like for me, one of the main critiques and one of the main fronts of that critique should be on an international perspective mm -hmm. that, that that kind of lacks. And that's why I think looking to a group like the Black Panthers is, is a much better inspiration for revolutionary change within the polity of the United States with respect to concern for international movements mm -hmm. and, and the rest of the world. The, the two, like, two final things, um, and these aren't questions, but more of just like recommendations were, one is how did the like can you talk just very briefly about the pedagogical style within the black panther party yeah, and like yeah. how they kind of made this information so accessible to uh not just like young people within the party but but anybody who wanted to join and how they made it relate to people's lives and and just generally their education style because i'm really curious about that as a student group yeah, we're yeah. kind of always interested in like ways that people learn and ways that people convey information. You mentioned with the video recordings, mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool because you had been talking earlier about like the letter deception method. And, and that's like a very familiar thing of manipulating information. So I guess with video, it's easier. You can actually confirm you're talking to a real person. Um, maybe not as much with like deep fake stuff. <laughs> yeah, anymore. I, so I don't know whether that changed, but like my image is going to fritz yeah. out. I'm going to be replaced by an FBI agent all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about that. And then my very last question is just yeah. like a general book recommendations for further reading. So anybody who's really fascinated by this can continue reading. 
Yeah. So let's, um, I guess I'll take the first one first while I think in the mm -hmm. back of my mind about book recommendations. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think the one thing that the, the Panthers were unambiguously successful at is the thing that you just mentioned, right? Which is his ability. And it's one of the reasons I think they have such a lasting legacy in, in, in a way that many, there were many other groups like the Panthers who had similar ideas, um, similarly committed, motivated, talented, bright, brave people. Um, the Panthers are the ones we talk about in, in part because they were so successful um, at, at communicating their ideas in ways that were easy to understand. And you know, the term I use in the book is anti-colonial vernacular, right? And what they did is they took, they did read their theory. They read their theory. They read their Mao. They read their Fanon. Um, but they, 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 you know, their, their whole, from the very beginning, from day one, uh, from October 1966, their goal was, how can I make these ideas accessible and available to the people I grow up with in my neighborhood, right? Who are not going to my community college, who are not going to read Fanon, who are not going to read Soul Book, um, who might not even read the Black Panther. Um, and I think the, the, the notion of drawing on the vernacular of wherever you are, right? And, and so uh, calling cops pigs, right? They ain't cops are pigs. Um, and the use, the use of, you know, one of the things that characterizes the, the, the Panthers vernacular is profanity, right? There's like Bobby, Bobby Seale's autobiography sees the time. Um, there's, a whole there's a whole chapter dedicated just to the word motherfucker. Like he literally does a whole chapter on this is why we say motherfucker so much. Um, and it really, it was very, you know, I think there are folks who are like, oh my God, they swear so much. But it, it's very, it was very calculated, right? It was calculated both both to reach people, because like the people like, hey, Hugh Newton was like, this is how the people on what, what, what he called the brothers on the block, right? So it's a gender term. We should, you know, obviously we need to, we need to acknowledge the fact that the, which a lot of the Panther organizing was heavily gendered, heavily masculinized in ways that were not necessarily great for the party. Um, but also as a way of signaling, you know, both the, the use of the word pigs, the use of a kind of um, very profane vernacular, um, indicates a fundamental level of disrespect for the institutions of this country that I think was very powerful and very, very important, right? That, no, we're not here to have a civilized debate with these motherfuckers. Um, and I guess, you know, th that maybe leads me to, 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 some rec to a recommendation. I think maybe there are tons of great stuff on the Panthers. Um, uh, the, let me, get the, the, let me make sure I have the actual title. Uh, so, uh, full title of this. Um, I think, uh, did you see a little power, uh, third title here. Uh, uh, Cynthia Young's book, Soul Power, I think is really interesting. Um, and it, it does look at, at, it's called Culture Radicalism and the Making of a U.S. Third World Left. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting uh, look at, a, at, at, and particularly it looks at a lot of groups that haven't attracted as much attention as the Panthers. Um, the other person I would flag the, as someone you should pay attention to uh, and read whatever they read, whatever they write, whether it's a book or whether it's on Twitter or on their blog, is Stephen Salida. Um, so for those who don't know, Stephen Salida was a professor who was hired by UIUC uh, with tenure. He, was, he does indigenous studies and Palestine studies. And he got fired for some tweets about Israel. Um, uh, he's no longer in the academy. Last I checked, he was driving a school bus. And he writes about this. He writes about this in his blog. But Stephen Salida, um, I think, in particular, is really useful for, um, for, for he, he is fantastic um, at talking about the academy in a very unvarnished way and its role and, or, and, and also its problems when it comes to being a site for revolution. Um, so, uh, you know, you can follow him on Twitter, you can follow him on Facebook. He's written a number of books. I think he's written seven or eight books. Um, but I, and, you know, also Stephen is one of the best people I've ever met. Um, he's amazing and he is genuine. And, uh, you know, particularly for those who are in the Academy, I think he has a really interesting and powerful critique of the Academy. Um, and, and and so I I can't say enough good things about Stephen Salida and, and and his work. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking to me about your book. I'll show it 
also on screen because I have a copy <laughs> and it's phenomenal. Um, I really recommend it. I, I, and, I would also say no one should buy that book. If you go uh, on, if you go on Libgen, just type in L I B G E N. Uh, it's a, a, it's a pirate website where you can download a lot of academic books. Uh, I just checked. I actually downloaded a copy of my book, a PDF of my book for free. So go to oh, Libgen. Yeah. You can download it for free. <laughs> I don't see any money off that shit anyway. Uh, so I don't well, feel bad about pirating academic books. And uh, I mean, just like as a general point of advice, like as a student, I th I've talked to other students about this, but I feel like you know, the less money you can spend on books, the better. And we do have that resource. Although I know they always put out stuff about, oh, no pirating allowed or whatever. I don't. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, again, I, like, I'm not going to defend. If someone comes after you, I'm not a lawyer. So, but like, I, <laughs> like, I have just made, I just have decided it started over COVID when, when a lot of the stuff's going online. I, I, I just made the decision that I would no longer make any of my students ever pay for a book again. And, and that's a phenomenal decision. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I just feel bad about not doing it earlier. Because um, I think for most professors, it's just that we don't think about it all the times. It's just like you think about what books you want to assign and then you think right. about it, right? And I think yeah. a lot of times we're not as conscious as we should be about, well, folks got to buy these books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and the fact is now you can, you know, uh, you can either scan them yourselves or, yeah, I mean, a site like Libgen, like, Right. I, I'm teaching, you know, all, all of my classes. I just went on this site ahead of time and, and just downloaded all that shit. And I don't feel bad about that kind of piracy because academics don't make money off of books, right? right? We Books are important to us for our careers. It's how you get tenure yeah. and shit. But it's not like, it's not like you're, it's not like when you pirate an academic book, you're taking, you're taking food off of anybody's table. <laughs> well, that, I have a clear conscience now about doing it. <laughs> yeah, I absolve well, you, my son. <laughs> thank you. So thanks so much. Um, I'll record, uh, put the uploading on to uh, YouTube and and uh, Spotify as well. I'll send it to you. Um, and then and then yeah, you have me on Twitter, and it's awesome to get to talk to you because uh, I'm gonna definitely stay in touch. Uh, I'm glad you have the same observations about Twitter that I do. <laughs> that it is it's more of a, a necessity than it is a, a something I enjoy using. But yeah, uh, I'm definitely keep in touch. Um, because this because this was a great conversation and I, I'm curious to ask you more questions about the book as they pop into my mind. Yeah, th thank you, John. Thank you. You're doing some fantastic work with this new project and uh, I was really, really, really glad to get a chance to chat with you and uh, I'll I'll look for you on the on on Twitter. I mean, I would like to say I don't enjoy it, but I, I enjoy it. I'm sorry. I do. It's bad <laughs> yeah. for my brain. It's really bad for me. I recognize it's bad for me. Um, but there is just something about having all of the unfiltered thoughts of the world wash over your diseased right. brain, right? Like, yeah, definitely, definitely. All well, right. well so I, if nothing else, have me on again when I when I come out with my book about Palestine. Um, I would love to, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a while. Be a great, but... Yeah, well, that would be a great one to do as well as kind of like the, I'm because I'm really fascinated about that too, about Canary Mission and, and all mm -hmm. that stuff is really interesting. So I'll, yeah, I'll definitely I, talk I to you again. Suggest yeah. dropping. I mean, I don't know how available he is these days, but drop Stephen Slide online. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I will. I'll check that out. That would be great. Um, he's be cool he, to talk to him. He's fantastic. All right, Joe. Well, cool. it was great to talk with you. Nice talking. Nice talking to you. All right, take care. Bye, Bye. Sean.